As we continue our series through the book of Revelation this evening, we're coming back in the middle of John's largest vision that's contained in this book, the the vision that reveals the tribulation judgments that happen in the seven-year period that we call the tribulation. This is when God pours out his wrath on on mankind in an unprecedented manner. Not since the the flood of Noah will will God's judgment be so apparent or, or so dreadful as what we see in these seven years. Um, I do have a chart that, if you didn't receive it before, when you came in, if you raise your hand, I'll get to it in a moment, but I see Carl's ready to hand them out, so um, he, I don't know if this will help or not, but um, it, something that I'll talk about here in a minute. Anyway, God's divine wrath will come during the seven-year period in, in the form of several very unique catastrophic events or, or judgments. Last week, we, we started looking at these judgments. Um, you probably recall, if you were here, that, that John received the revelation about the judgments in such a way that they're grouped into three sets. The, the first set we call the, the seal judgment, the second set is the trumpet judgments, and the third set is the bowl judgments. Uh, last week, I explained that these seals all are arranged so that at the end, at the same point, that each of the series will... will serve to help us look closer. They're arranged so that at the end of each point, they, they all end at the same time, and the series look more closely as we get to the end at what God is doing. When we got home last night, my wife reminded me, or last night, last week, she reminded me of this chart that I put together several years ago when I taught this in a Sunday school class. And, and she asked if I'd pull it out again because she couldn't find hers in her Bible. Somehow, one thing fell out of her Bible. If you ever see her Bible, you'll be shocked because there's a lot of things stored in there, but I'm getting the look. I'm in trouble. <laughs> Deacons, let's have a really long meeting tonight. <laughs> anyway, she reminded me about this chart and, and asked if I would pull it out again. The, this is certainly no work of art, uh, but, but here it is. Um, it, it, I, as I said, I put this together a few years ago when I taught the book. And I'm sure that if I worked on it, or better yet, if Pastor Aaron or Donna worked on it, they could use better technology than what I had at the time. If I gave it to Carl, he'd convert it to Excel somehow. We'd, we'd come up with something different than what you have, but, but hopefully this might help us a little bit. I, I might serve to illustrate what I'm trying to communicate with these series of judgments all ending at the same, same time. Last week with chapter 6, we began to look at the tribulation period, and, and if we click to next slide, we'll see this is this section that's circled with the oval. That's the tribulation period, the the seven years of judgment. Let's blow that up a little bit on the next slide, and and we'll see the the series of judgments. What I tried to explain is that the seven seal judgments cover the entire seven-year period. When we open the seventh seal, what I believe we find are the seven trumpets. There's like John turned up the magnifying glass another power and we zoom in on that seventh seal and we see there's actually seven trumpets within that. When we get to the seventh trumpet, the same thing happens. All of a sudden we look closer, we zoom in again and there are the seven bowls. So from a time standpoint, chronologically, the seven judgments or the seven seals and the seven trumpets and seven bowls, the seventh one all ends at the same time. It brings the tribulation period to its culmination. So we're just looking more and more closely because as we get closer and closer to Christ's final return and the battle of Armageddon that frankly is months away from us as we go through this, our study here yet, 
But when we get closer and closer, that God is pouring out more and more judgment, faster and faster, harsher and harsher on mankind. And, and that's what the judgments represent. As I mentioned last week, there's a lot of ways that these judgments are, are, are interpreted, the series sequenced in the, the time frame. This is just my understanding, uh, putting it together. It's like dialing up to a higher zoom level and looking more closely at what happens. Now, because of this overlapping pattern, all the series end, and we'll come to that end in chapter 19 when Christ returns. Last week, what we saw was the first six seals. The first six seals were opened, and as we saw, as each seal was broken, a judgment popped out of it. Rather than reading the scroll that contained the, the, the judgment information, the judgments themselves came out. By, by the end of the sixth seal that we got to last week, one-fourth of the world's population was killed. Or maybe I should use future tense, that hasn't happened yet, will be killed. Um, we also saw that by that point, there will be no doubt in any of the people who are still alive on the earth that the things they have endured are a direct result of divine judgment. Last week, chapter 6 ended with telling us that all humanity, that, that would be all rebellious humanity that is shaking their fist at Christ, are, are striving to hide from him. If we look at verse 16 of chapter 6, they're trying to hide from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They know this is God pouring his judgment out. Somehow, some way, by this point in the tribulation period, they know. Um, it, I believe we're right at the midpoint of tribulation at this time. Like I said, there's many different timelines that people propose. That's just my understanding. So take it for what limited value it might be. But I believe that's where we're at. We're at the midpoint by the time we get to the sixth seal. And at that point, they know. Now, just one clarification. Someone asked me this week um, if the first four horsemen, those could be something happening now. And the answer is no, not at this point. Because... The rapture comes before we enter the tribulation period. The church will not be on the earth at this time. So we are not experiencing any of these judgments at this moment. We just know the day is getting closer. The day is getting closer and the church will be removed. And as the church is removed, then we enter from a revelational standpoint what began in chapter 4 with John's vision as he got this vision of what will happen in this final tribulation period. We will be some of those people seen at the end of chapter 4, arranged around the throne, giving praise to the, the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb of God, and joyfully praising our God during that time. So I've wandered from my notes, now I have to figure out where I'm at in them. So in three and a half years, we have a quarter of the world's population has died, but the worst is yet to come. In fact... The final question that's posed at the end of chapter 6 is crucial. It says, For the great day of their wrath has come. Who there would be the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb? Who is able to stand? In other words, who can survive the great day of wrath that has been prophesied and that has begun with the calamities that have been already brought such death and destruction to the earth when the worst is still coming? We've all, we're only three and a half years into the seven-year period. A quarter of the world population has died. Who's going to survive when it gets really bad? That's the idea that they're asking. In three and a half years, the worst is yet to come. And the people recognize that. 
That's why it's inconceivable to the people enduring things at this point that there's any chance of survival. Yet, let's not forget, there's also no repentance. They know this is divine judgment. They, they know this is God judging them, but rather than repent, they attempted to hide. They, they ran into the mountains and into the caves trying to hide from God rather than bow before God. That's the rebellious human heart. As we enter chapter 7, then, chronologically, as I said, we're right at the midpoint of the tribulation. At least, that's my understanding. We're at the midpoint. We're not going to move into the great day of the Lord, though, tonight. That's what begins at the three and a half period, what in the Old Testament is often referred to as the great day of the Lord, the great day of wrath. Instead, from a chronological standpoint, we're going to hit pause on the unfolding of the schedule of judgments. As John receives the first of several scenes that I'm going to call interludes. That's frequently the way they're referred to. These are interludes. John steps out of the flow of time in the Revelation and gives us some background information. In every case, what John receives is background that will, in some sense, help clarify what is yet to come. He'll give us some piece of data, some, some understanding that we need to make better sense of what's about to happen. Sometimes John will reveal glimpses of things that have occurred in the past that have prepared for these events. Other times he might have a scene inserted of, of what's happening in heaven while these judgments are happening on earth. Um, it's best to think of the interlude scenes in, in this large vision that covers these seven-year periods as just simply outside the flow of the tribulation timeline. They're necessary. They, they give clarity to events that are coming within the timeline, the, the judgments, but they're outside the flow of that time. Time isn't progressing when we look at the, the interludes. Good storytellers do this all the time. I'm sure if you read fiction at all, you've experienced this kind of thing. The, the author's telling you what's happening, and all of a sudden you hit a chapter where Time stops and he gives us something, some piece of data from the back, a history of the person, some, something that's going on with a whole different character that we haven't even met yet that will come into play, something like that. Well, John certainly has the greatest storyteller of all time giving him his information. He, the greatest storyteller ever, the one who wrote the story of history, is providing this vision. So, so we shouldn't be surprised to find these features of good storytelling in in. The, the book that we're looking at. So our interlude tonight actually has two scenes to it, two different things that we're looking at. And, and we'll look at each one, but they both serve the same purpose. They, they serve to answer that important question that was asked at the end of the last chapter. Who is able to stand? God's judgment is falling on mankind. Who is able to stand the, the way it was asked by rebellious humanity, it was asked in a rhetorical fashion. Their, their perspective was nobody could stand. Nobody can stand against God's wrath. And, and in a sense, that's certainly true. God is infinitely greater than men. Rebellious mankind has no chance of circumventing God's judgment. Yet that's not the entire answer. God is always a merciful God. God is always a gracious God. Man cannot stand against God's judgments, but that does not mean that God will not graciously rescue some men from his judgments. 
the surprising answer that, that we see this evening in response to the question of who can stand is that God's grace shines forth even during divine wrath. God's grace shines forth even during divine wrath. Let's look at our interlude this evening. The, the first scene that, that John is given in this interlude is contained in verses 1 through 8. So follow along, please, as I, I read these verses. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. What we discover in these verses is God's grace establishes gospel witnesses who then stand during his wrath. Who can stand during his wrath? Gospel witnesses who stand during his wrath. They're there by God's grace. God's grace establishes gospel witnesses. The, the, the key that, that John's vision is shifting is, again, the, the words we see at the beginning, after this I saw. Those words popped up last week a couple times. They, they pop up again. Every time John's vision shifts in some way, this is the code word for us, that, that we're seeing something different. It, there's a shift in perspective. This time as John's vision shifts, he, he sees four angels at, at the four points of the compass. That, that's the meaning there, the four corners of the earth. Not that they thought the earth was flat, but you know, just like we think of a compass having four directions. That's how they looked. And, and these four angels are in charge of winds that blow from those respective directions. When, when John sees them, they're, they're holding back the wind, apparently in, in preparation for releasing a mighty destructive blast in, in the coming judgments against the earth. It's quite possible that these are part of the trumpet judgments they're about to sound. When, when they release the wind, destruction will occur. Instead of releasing the destruction, though, these four angels are told to, to hold. The, uh, suddenly a fifth angel pops on the scene, and that fifth angel says, Hold on, just a moment, not yet. There's enough information here that, that we can actually place this interlude within our tribulation timeline. Uh, I, what we're reading is happening right here at the midpoint, be between the sixth seal and the beginning of the seventh seal. Time is stopping for a moment for something to, ha to happen. In, in this case, the time stops until these events here are complete. Um, at least from a basic standpoint, we're not moving forward in, in the, the, tr the judgments themselves. Whether there's passage of time and that there's a brief pause in the judgments, I, you know, I won't into all of that, I don't know. Um, what I know is that there's an interlude here between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. 
or which becomes the, the seven trumpets. Because this fifth angel is telling these four angels, hold on, just wait. The four are poised to, to harm the earth and the sea, and the trees are called out specifically because trees are very vulnerable to wind. Hold on. They, they need to wait until the fifth angel ha, has completed the task that he's been given by God. We can note it's clear that the, the fifth angel does not work alone because he says until we have done what he has been sent to do there in verse 3. So it's possible the fifth angel enlists the four angels we've already met that are holding the winds. Maybe he says, you guys come help me. Or maybe he brings other angels along to help. But he doesn't do it alone. There's, a, there's multiple angels involved with sealing the, the 144,000. He's been given this task of sealing those who are called the bond servants of God. He, he's been given, in fact, the, the seal of the living God in order to complete the task. Now, the seal, I, I trust you understand, is a unique stamp that is used to stamp soft material. You know, as the scrolls were opened, the seals were broken. Those were with soft material that was stamped to, to show that only the one who's authorized could, could open it. Uh, so oftentimes the seal, what was stamped into that soft wax or whatever was used to, to create the seal, it oftentimes was a signet ring. So when a ruler would give his signet ring to, to another person that could use that ring, it was, that person was acting on behalf with the full authority of the ruler. Well, here this angel, this fifth angel, is acting on the authority of God and with the authority of God. He has God's seal. God has given it to him to use. He's to use that seal to mark in, in some manner the foreheads of specific bond servants of God so that they will be protected from harm when the four angels let loose what they are about to inflict upon the earth. In, in verses 4 through 8, we're specifically told who's sealed. There's 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel. As, as we go on through the book, we, we learn that these 144, they're, they're set apart to serve as witnesses during the last half of the tribulation. They're there clearly as Israelites, as, as John hears the specific instructions sealed 12,000 from each tribe, beginning with the tribe of Israel. They're clearly Israelites that are sealed, and they will serve as witnesses to God during the last half of the tribulation. Now, one of the odd things when you studied the list is that Joseph is substituted for Ephraim in the list. Remember Ephraim and Manasseh, those were two of Joseph's sons, and they're both counted as if they're among Jacob's sons, so that Joseph receives a double blessing in the promised land, and they receive a double portion of land. Well, now instead of Ephraim, Joseph is listed, and Ephraim is not. Also, if you really look at the list carefully, Dan is not listed. And that makes room for Levi, who normally is not listed in these kind of lists because Levi did not receive a portion of land. Levi um, is often not listed because he, Levi served as the priestly tribe of Israel. And rather than receiving a portion of land, Levi was dispersed throughout the land in, in cities serving as priests. Why the list is modified in this manner is unknown. Um, now, and I'm not going to make too much of... Uh, of the differences, there, there's often differences when the 12 tribes are listed. In fact, if you spent time studying through the Bible carefully, and I have not this carefully, I'm taking it from other men that have, that 
they, they've counted there's a total of 19 different listings when the tribes are listed, uh, varying in the order of the tribes, sometimes and which tribes included and which ones excluded. And frankly, no scholar can explain why. It's just one of those mysteries of Scripture. I also have no idea what the mark on the forehead looks like. Um, Lots of speculation on that. Uh, for Back in the 80s, was it, that we had all these movies that loved to speculate on these end-time things? I have no idea what it looks like. There, there's clearly an illusion here, though, when we see this to Ezekiel 9.4. There an angel was sent to mark out those who were faithful to God so that they would be protected before God destroyed Jerusalem as part of the Babylonian um, punishment that, that God sent upon Israel. When God was going to let Babylon destroy the nation, in Ezekiel 9, an, an angel was sent before Jerusalem was destroyed to mark out those who were faithful in, in some manner so that they were preserved, they were protected from that destruction. So the seal here on these 144,000, however it works, we know it's a seal of protection for those who are thus sealed. They, they will be protected from the divine plagues that come in the last half of the tribulation. Now, that does not seem to necessarily mean that they're protected from harm inflicted by, by human agency, as, as later it seems that at least some of these 144,000 will be martyred later on in the tribulation. But they will be divinely protected from the divine judgments. They will not feel the wrath of God just as the faithful were divinely protected in Ezekiel's day. So when we look at these first eight verses, there, there's several things we don't know. There, there's questions raised by the verses, but, but one thing we do know <coughs> is an answer to that question. Who can stand? Who can stand in the day, great day of tribulation that, that's coming over the next three and a half years? The answer is 144,000 sealed witnesses of Israel can stand. They will stand. By, by God's grace, they will serve as witnesses to, to the mercy and the grace of God throughout these very horrific years that are coming upon the earth. Think about this. Here we are living in the church age. As I said, we won't be there during that time. The church is going to be removed, but we're living in the church age. And during this time, Israel as a nation has been set aside while, while God is ushering in the elect that are primarily Gentiles. They're, they're primarily Gentiles. Very few Israelites are accepting Christ. And so God's kingdom at this time is primarily being built up with, with other nations through the gospel message of the church. When we get to the end of human history and we come to this extremely severe time of the tribulation, there will be a revival uh, of belief among the nation of Israel. There, there will be men and women turning to faith in Jesus Christ in great numbers. And that revival will be sparked by 144,000 men from the nation of Israel who are divinely sealed. Men who are protected from the judgments that are falling on the rest of humanity. And they're protected so that they can witness to the earth about the grace of God that is available by faith through Jesus Christ. So not only will 144,000 Israelites accept Jesus as Savior, they'll also serve as his boldest vocal witnesses during this time of horrific judgment. This is undeserved grace. God is showing grace to the very nation that crucified the Savior, the very nation that rejected him. 
This is God's grace. Who can stand? God's grace establishes gospel witnesses who then stand during his wrath. God's grace enables one to stand. So, we see in the first eight verses that God's grace shines forth, even during divine wrath. That's that principle, and it repeats over and over because we have a gracious God. We will see it throughout this book, that even as wrath is falling, divine grace is still on display. God's grace shines forth even during divine wrath. In the second half of interlude, John's vision shifts again, and he sees another scene. If you look in verse 9, after these things I looked. Or, I'm not sure why I've translated look this time. If the same word, after these things I saw, his vision shifts, and he's able to see another scene. So pick up there in verse 9. I, I looked, and behold, a great multitude with, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Those who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and will guide them to springs of water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So in these verses, we really see another answer to the question, who can stand? Who can stand? The answer is God's grace saves faithful martyrs who then stand during his wrath. Faithful martyrs. John's gaze shifts here from the earth back to the throne room of God. The, the timing seems to be either remaining at the midpoint of tribulation or it kind of seems to be spanning that whole last half as he sees the results of, of what's happening in, in the great day of wrath. The, the first six judgments are complete, but the great day of wrath has not begun. So he's either looking there at the midpoint, seeing who came out of the first half, or even looking into the second half. Um, I'm comfortable going either way with that. What John sees is a great multitude, a multitude assembled before the throne. Apparently, the, the 144,000 Israelites, they could be counted. You could sit there and number 12,000, 12,000, 12,000 and count them. This multitude is so massive, it cannot be counted. What John observes is that once again, there are people represented from every segment of humanity. In Revelation 5, verse 9, praise went to the risen Lamb, remember, because he redeemed people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
Now once more, there's people standing before the throne from these same groupings. These groupings that represent every possible division into which humanity may be divided. Every way we could slice and dice and categorize people. No matter how you want to look at humanity, there's representatives from every group. From verse 14, it's clear that the people John sees are martyrs. Those who died for their faith. They're not clothed in white robes, just like the martyrs that we encountered last week. Remember in, in the fifth seal, we had martyrs that were praying for vengeance, asking God, how long do we have to wait till you, you give us the vengeance, re, revenge our blood? At that point, remember, the martyrs were told that their number was not yet complete. They need wait. Their vengeance was on hold because there was still more to fill up the number. The wrath was still combining. Well, apparently these martyrs that John sees here, this number without measure, they fill up that number so that the great day of wrath can begin and can pour out. These martyrs come and the wrath begins. After observing the, the white robes, John goes on in verse 9 to note that, that these martyrs, they're, they're holding palm branches. Palm branches symbolize triumph and joy. That, that's why, as we're coming up on Palm Sunday here in a little while, that's why the people laid palm branches before Christ as he was entering Jerusalem. Palm branches represent triumph and, and joy. The people believed that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to take his throne, so they were celebrating that, that the king was coming. Well, these martyrs have palm branches in their hands because they are victorious. They're victorious because they are standing before the throne of God in their final victory. There's no question if they will be victorious. They are in God's presence, standing. Look at their song. Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They're standing there praising God and Jesus for their accomplished salvation. They're no longer waiting to see the end result of their salvation. They're no longer persevering in their faith. They are finished. They are glorified. According to the elder who explains things to John in verse 15, this is what they do continually. Day and night, they stand there praising God. They serve God with their praise and adoration, proclaiming the great salvation that they've received, the, the eternal protection that is now theirs because they're in the presence of God. They're standing in his tabernacle. He spread his protection over them. Nothing can ever, ever, ever touch them. This is amazing to me as I picture this scene in my mind. This is amazing. These are martyrs. They, they've suffered and died for their faith. They experienced the ultimate in, in physical persecution. But all they have now is praise for their salvation as they stand in the presence of God. We need to remember that no matter what we face during this life, it is going to fade to completely irrelevant when we stand before God. No matter what it is. When we stand in God's presence, when we see our God, when, when we gaze on our Savior, when we find ourselves clothed in, in pure righteousness, when we share in the victory of the Lamb over sin and death, 
When we get to that point, we are going to find ourselves praising God with as much joy and adoration as this multitude that John glimpses here in this vision. We truly need to remember this truth. We need to remember this picture. We're, we're so time-bound. We're so time-bound that the trials and hardships of, of life, they, they so easily consume our attention. They, they, they draw away our joy so quickly. We need to have our thoughts recentered by, by visions like this one. Eternity is our future reality. Eternity is before us. Our current experience, whatever it is, that's not our ultimate reality. Praise and joy, that's our future ultimate reality. We need to let our minds imagine the scene that, that John observes in these verses. If these martyrs will praise God, then so will we. We will praise him with every fiber of our being. John observes that, that when the multitude cry out with a loud voice and praise, well then the myriads of angels that, that are before the throne and the elders and the four living creatures, all of those that we saw surrounding the throne in chapter 5, they also renew their worship of God because they see these redeemed standing there giving praise to God and they collectively, the others then collectively fall on their faces before the throne. And they add their voices into the worship of God. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. All these add their voices to the, the praise and worship of God for the salvation that he has given to men. The, for the salvation that he has given to those who are able to stand during his wrath because God has saved them through the Lamb. Yes, they stand in heaven, not on earth. But they stand for eternity. What a surprising image is presented in verse 14. The, the, the purifying cleansing of these martyrs it occurs through the washing of the blood of the Lamb. We all know blood normally stains, right? But in this case, though, it cleanses. It cleanses because it's sacrificial blood in a manner that's far greater than the blood of bulls and goats that covered the sins of Israel in the Old Testament, the blood of the risen lamb removes every stain of sin from those who have placed their faith in Jesus. Not even death could taint his cleansing power. Now, having finished their witness on earth, they stand before God without fear of any future hardships. The judgments that are coming that will bring the hardships of, of verse 16 to the rest of the earth, it will have no impact on them whatsoever. They're standing before the, the throne. The Lamb will continue to be their guide to eternal life. He provides eternal protection and refreshment for them. Through Christ, eternity awaits as God wipes away every tear from their eyes. Who will stand in the great day of wrath? These. These who are under the saving protection of God's grace, they will stand. God's grace saves faithful martyrs who then stand during his wrath. That's the second answer to the question of chapter 6 that's given in the interlude that John receives here in chapter 7. This interlude between the 6th and the 7th seal, this interlude teaches us that God's grace shines forth even during divine wrath. God's grace shines forth. God's grace establishes gospel witnesses 
who then stand during his wrath. God's grace saves faithful martyrs who then stand during his wrath. Two groups who stand during his wrath, very different manner, very different ways, but they both stand in order to shine forth his grace. As I mentioned last week, the application for us in, in this chapter and chapter last week and many of these chapters is indirect. We're not here. The church is removed. We're already celebrating in the throne of God by the time we get to this. We are looking at these events that will come after the church has been removed from the earth. Yet, remember this revelation was given to encourage the church. Through John, it's been given to us. So there is something here for us. It is for us. Even though we're not directly in it, it's for us. We are to see through John what he has seen and be encouraged. As the world crushes down on us and as we feel the, the pressure and we, we begin to wonder where is it going to go as the, the world hates us because of our faith and, and that pressure builds, sometimes we're tempted to think that the God's people are being crushed. Much like the question that's posed, who can stand, we start to wonder, will anybody be able to survive the pressure that's coming on the church? We need to re realize that God has assured us that even in the worst period ever on the earth, his grace is sufficient to allow some to stand. His grace is sufficient. Even as divine wrath itself is being pulled out, poured out with full force on the earth, God's grace will continue to shine forth. If that's the case, then we can have confidence that now it is shining forth as well. We can have confidence that it is shining forth now as we faithfully keep on serving God, doing as Peter tells us, just keep doing right. We can have confidence that God's grace will shine. As we face trials and hardships and persecution, God's grace will shine. God's grace shines forth even during divine wrath. Let's pray. Father, again, we are amazed by the picture that we see here in your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the grace that you pour out so undeservably, but that which shows how glorious our Savior is as he saves multitudes of men. Father, we rejoice that we are saved, that we are even know that should tribulation come within our lifetime, that we are saved from this tribulation because we will be removed. But Father, we also recognize that in here we see a picture of what's coming in the future that should encourage us now, that your grace is sufficient for all that we face, that as we endure, your, your grace shines forth. So may we do that for the glory of our God, for the magnification of our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.